0: We're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer, and so while we get the pictures up, I want to tell you a little bit about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, uh, We started this work in Memphis uh, 15 years ago, and one of the things that we are deliberately doing and have continued to do is to try to bring people from the communities where we're working into the organization. So um, we sort of have this general guideline that if you're going to be a provider of services or an administrator of a certain level, that you have to pass the Rick Donlan smell like Jesus test, meaning I have to smell Jesus on you. Um, but if it's an entry-level position, we open that up to people who are in the community and maybe even uh, people who might be patients sometimes. And so and we've met many people who were discipled already when we hired them that we didn't know before. But all that to say, is the duly computer team. Um, we had to learn how to pray with people who play differently. Okay? And so you can imagine if we rotate the prayer duties that sometimes there's different styles of prayer, right? And um, I've learned some things over the years about how, uh, particularly African-American people sometimes pray. I'm going to tell a story while I get the computer up. I helped a patient, a family with a their elderly the grandmother of the family to die and to do the right thing and to provide care for her as she was going and not to do too much, if you know what I mean. But so I got invited to the funeral, I think as much to sort of provide cover to the family that had chosen to do the right thing. And I thought I was just going go to go soon as I pay my respect. But I actually got invited up onto the podium. And then they explained to me that I was going to preach. <laughs> True story. <laughs> the Promised Land Church of God in Christ on Airways Boulevard in the world. Amen. Brother. I still have them, yes. <laughs> I still my heart when I go by it sometimes. I got up on on the podium and I looked out in terror, much more frightened than I am now. I'm a little frightened of you guys, but I was, I was terrified of that audience. And I started to, to say the truth about this woman's life and about how it was the right thing to let her go. And as I got into it, I started just to be a little more comfortable. All of a sudden, the guy in the organ behind me started coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, does that mean I should be done? I should be done? <laughs> <laughs> you want to be a. Right? right. I and, I turn and I just turned around I just, no, uh-uh, <laughs> I don't know how to theory. do that, sir. <laughs> Thank you guys. Almost, almost. All right. So, there's one prayer that everybody knows. What is it? Lord's Prayer. Thing. Yeah, everybody knows it. White people know it. Black people know it. If you're like me and you went to Catholic school a bit when you were younger, you can say it in Latin, right? Quod noster quies in caeli, sanctus I don't know what I'm saying, but it sounds good. Right. I ride the bus. You ride the bus. You ride the bus. terrible thing about the Lord's Prayer is that you know it by heart. There might be a few people in this room who don't know it by heart, but most of us know the Lord's Prayer by heart. Some version of it. Trespasses or death or, so, you know, whatever you do. But So the great thing about it is if you're on a train across Siberia, you've got it in your mind and heart and you can meditate on it. You can think about it. And you should. And the bad thing about that is that it could be like an are not It should be meaningless, right? You could. You could unknowingly take the prayer that Jesus gave us when His disciples said, "Teach us how to pray." God, how does this how like prayer? Will You please teach us how to pray? The most important instructions for prayer,
1: and you may just sort of pass over them because they're too familiar to you. So that's the problem. How are we looking? It's going to be a few more minutes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. So here I am. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in New Orleans. I'm 17 years old, and um, I don't give a rip about God. In fact. I I care about skipping class and playing football and smoking dope and um, persuading young ladies to go to places where they shouldn't go, and just like we talked about this morning, um, God spoke to me, called me out, all of a sudden, the guy who, you know, if I would hear a preacher on the radio, I would want to turn the channel as fast as I could, then all of a sudden, Tethered. Okay. Are you sure? I'm sure. Okay. Great. And you have first aid available for me if uh, these nice people right here? I'm sorry. i spitting on you already, aren't I? Okay. All right. I'm just warming up. Yeah. Okay. All right. So here is us honestly praying the Lord's Prayer a million years ago, 12 years ago. And here's the the slide to remind me to tell you that the good thing is that you haven't memorized and the bad thing is that you haven't memorized. And here is Mel Gibson's Jesus, okay? And really, again, think about it. His disciples are with him. They're watching him. They see him praying. You know he prayed a lot, right? And they ask him, will you please teach us how to pray? And so it's muy importante, big stuff. All right, you've heard before from lots of people that the Lord's Prayer is not supposed to be a rote thing, not a memorized thing, that it's a, it's a blueprint or a pattern, right? That's certainly true. And what I want to persuade you is that it's actually more than that. It is both a blueprint or a plan for how to pray and a blueprint or a format how to live. Okay? Jesus isn't just um, teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us what's most important and what we should pursue. Okay, so when I was that um, person who was running from God, an enemy from God, and he called me and pulled me out and made me know him, they had to sit me down and teach me how to be a Christian. So this nice youth pastor at this church in New Orleans when I'm 17 says, okay, Rick, you have to learn to have quiet times. I'm like, what the, you know what? I go off in the corner and wait to hear. No, 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 you have to have a quiet time. That's when you read the Bible. And you pray and you learn to know God. And they taught me this acronym. Anybody use this acronym or know this acronym? Yeah. So for years and years, this is what I used. What's the A stand for? Adoration. What did you say? Adoration. Oh, you said adoration. I thought you said adulation or something. <laughs> wow, this you guy's a better one than I do. Okay, so, yes. Um, <clears throat> you're on your knees, or at least in your heart, and you're reflecting on God and you're loving God. So that's the A. All right, and early on and to this day, 30 years later, the C is confession. All right? And I get to spend a lot of time doing that. All right? But that was good advice. And the T? Thanksgiving, always good. And finally the S, supplication. So from 1981 to probably six or seven years ago, this was the format that I used, and it's good. I, it, it was very helpful for a long time. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that you consider letting the Lord's Prayer supplement or supplant that. The Lord's Prayer that you already have memorized. Okay, and again, not just a pattern for prayer, but a, a, a pattern for living. For knowing what's most important to pray about and live about. All right, and there's one more thing I want to sell you. I think, after reflection, I'm sure that this isn't an original thought. Um, I think that Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer in the order that he teaches it on purpose, Okay, meaning that the most important things are at the beginning. The, it's like a pyramid where he starts with what matters most, and then he builds up from there. Okay, So depending on how you divide it, people divide it differently. I'm going to propose to you that it has five parts, and... Um, not counting the greeting or the salutation, our Father who art in heaven, but from that point to the end of it, there are five parts. And I think many of you know that the, um, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory is uh, actually not in the book. So um, some religious traditions don't say it, and it's great. It makes all kinds of sense. But probably in the earliest text, it's not there. That part's not there. So um deliver us from evil, period. That would be the end, or the evil one. All right, so anyway, five parts, and we're only going to have time to talk about maybe two of them. I hope two of them. And so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to talk about the two that matter the most. Two out of five. What are you guys laughing about? Is my fly down? I spit on you? No? Okay. All right. This is the uh, president of the National Rifle Association. <laughs> may he rest in peace Um, no Moses and here's why I have a picture of Moses I want you to think about the Ten Commandments the Decalogue Uh, again this notion like the pyramid the most important things come first the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are about God Right? you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make an idol what's the third one You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth, keep the Sabbath. I teach my children, the first time human beings get involved in the commandments is the fifth command. The most important of all, honor your father and your mother. Right? Although I didn't always follow that. Um, It's the same with Moses as it is with the Lord's Prayer. It's when a disingenuous uh, religious teacher asked Jesus, what's the most important thing in the law? He said, first... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then, love your neighbors, yourself. God first, God first, God first, then people, then us. Same pattern. Okay. So, number one. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Okay, here's what I propose to you as the bottom of the pyramid, the most important thing for praying and the most important thing for living, and we don't know what it means. When's the last time in the use of the English language you hallowed anything?
1: <laughs>
0: right. It almost happened to me last weekend. Hallowed be the LSU Tigers. Right? Does matter. What does it mean? This is this is the bottom of the pyramid. What does the word hallowed mean? Holy. That's kind of a Bible word too. What's holy mean? Set apart. What else? Give me some more. What? Sacred. That's pretty bible too. I like it. It's sacred. What else? Separate. What's that? Revealed. Revealed. What else? Without sin? Above all things. You like that one? Got a big nod up here. Honor. I like that. Make famous. Make much of. Right?
1: Singular.
0: Just one. Okay. Hallowed be thy name. According to Jesus, when you're seeking God, when you're trying to live your life as a disciple, the most first thing, first, first thing is that the name of God would be hallowed. That the living God would... Get the glory that he deserves. And specifically, that the Christ who suffered and died in obedience on our behalf gets all of the recognition and honor that he deserves. That the name of the living God is set apart, holy, sacred, all the things that you said. That the Lord gets what he deserves. To be exalted, to be set apart, to be desirable, and in every way his reputation made much So you get up in the morning and you hit your knees and that's the first thing. Oh, please today, let me make your name great. Let me set you apart. Let me be part of making you look what you are. Great. Okay. There it is, the base of the pyramid. I think honestly, if we get this right, the rest of the Lord's Prayer comes pretty easy. That's that's your goal. All right, and we talked about this. What does this word mean? To make greater, to honor. Any English majors in the room? It's in the... Oh, you raised your hand. You wish you didn't, huh? (laughs) Okay. It's in the passive subjunctive. What does that mean, teacher? You can say, I don't know. I'll tell you. She doesn't remember. Does anybody else remember? All right. We're not saying, God, you honor your name. We're saying, really... Oh, that it might be that you would be honored, that the honor would come to you, that it would come not from you, but to you. That's the first driving part of our prayer life and our life life. Okay. This is not the um, cover of the Dutch Master's cigar box. All right, These are some really smart Presbyterians. And that's a tautology, right? All Presbyterians think they're smart already. Um, But the Westminster Catechism, year 1642, um, has these series of questions. So the question number one is what is the chief end? What's the main purpose? What is it? Here, there's some Presbyterians. What is the chief end of men? Do you see how they brainwash these (laughs) (laughs) Presbyterians? The chief end of men, the purpose that you're on this globe for is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. John Piper puts a little twist on it. and uh, You glorify God by enjoying Him, which is true too. This is the same message of the Lord's Prayer. This is what we're made for. This is where we actually are going to get our 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 joy and our purpose. Again, it's this paradox that Jesus teaches us over and over again. Like, As you give up your own... Making much of yourself, which is our natural default, and you turn to making much of God, he reveals himself to you, and you begin to get pleasure and enjoyment from that and from him. Okay, so it's supposed to be about God, but we make it about us. Or actually, what do we make it about? Okay. Told you I have lots of kids. What do you who needs proof about the fallen nature of humanity? Just have some kids, right? <laughs> we are all selfish. When it happens in our house, we have this little song we sing Me, 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 I love myself, I have my picture on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> it's not awesome, but it's funny.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it's true, right? is a picture that I love. If you love it, you can just go to Google Images and put in Adam Neckbeard and it comes up. Okay? So. Right. Not really. Okay. The reason we're fighting this battle is because our first parents Disobeyed, that we are rebels. We come by it honest, right? The temptation that Adam and Eve faced is really nothing more than a twist on the temptation that Lucifer succumbed to. Do you remember the story in Isaiah fourteen? I will make myself like the Most High. I'll put my throne above the throne of the Lord. I'm not nobody's gonna be the boss of me. Did he really say if you eat that fruit, you'll die? You know, he's trying to hold you back. It's not really what's going to happen. He's trying to hold you back. If you eat it, you'll be like God. I want to be God because I'm the son of Adam. I like this picture too. This is humanity right here. Our natural default is to want to make much of us instead of God. It's it's a it's slavery, right? It's an idol that crushes us eventually. Skipping the Western United States. All right, so we're almost done with this part one. Um, the dead middle of the bullseye in our praying, in our living, is to make ourselves about making much of God. To fight the natural tendency to want it to be about us, to try our best to get out of the way, and to live these lives we have, these gifts that we have, for the exaltation of Him. And again, the irony is, that's what's going to give us the most satisfaction. I hope nobody in the room can see what that is. And if you've heard this talk before, Memphis people, don't scream it out. Anybody know what it is? All right, I'm about to change it. You ready? Let's go back. I swear, it's the same picture. Right? Here's the point. When we begin, in our faltering, sinful way... To see that the reason we live, the reason we pray, is to make God look great. All of the Christian life whoo, can come into focus. Okay, Much of the Bible begins to make sense when it didn't before. The way we move in our lives and the way we make decisions, when it's generated by this unifying principle and purpose, make sense. It comes together. When we get it, that that's what we're here for, we can get what we're supposed to do next. And without understanding that and pursuing that, we're, we're wandering. Okay, so that's part one. Hallowed be thy name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you hear that? It's, it, it's poetry, isn't it? You hear the couple, with, thy kingdom come. And I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, number two, we just said it. I want you for a second to think about you, or Peter and James and John and Matthew and the gang. You're in, you're being tutored by Jesus about prayer, and He says the second thing. Once you get the fact that making God look great and Him being how it is the main thing for you to get out of bed every morning, put your sandals on for. The second thing is to pray to God, to ask God that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right. You're living in first century Palestine. You're, um, frankly, an oppressed people. Right. This is a prayer for a regime change, isn't it? This is saying, we're asking you, God, for the rule and authority that you have in heaven, the principles, the justice, the prosperity... The joy, those qualities that exist under your right rule in heaven, please bring them to earth now. Bring the reality of the kingdom of God as it perfectly exists in heaven onto earth now. Regime change. all right. And here's the bad guy for them. right? They're living in a time where the Romans were kicking butt and taking names. Their names. They wanted a regime change. They had hope in the Messiah. We looked at some of the passages this morning from the Old Testament about the son of David who would resurge, would bring Israel back to its greatness. We have regime, regime changes here. We just had one two years ago. and um, Dr. Uh, George Bush is back. He's got a book back. But thank goodness it's usually peaceful. It's always peaceful in our country thus far. But two years ago, the guy on the left and his guys got voted out. And the guy on the right and his guys got voted in. And so the guy on the left who used to decide who get to be the bosses of the department of this and got to decide who would join the Supreme Court when there was got to direct the legislation, he's gone, he's out, and there's a regime change with a new guy who has different views. It doesn't matter whether you like one guy or the other. So what happened? We just had another election, and some people want another kingdom to come or something. This is fundamentally, and uh, somebody asked me after the first session if I had a gun in Binghampton. I, I have a pellet gun, which, if we have time, I'll tell you the stupidest thing I ever did, where I went to confront an intruder with my pellet gun.
1: <laughs>
0: Bad idea. Um, I I don't want to seem like a militaristic, uh, angry. I don't have a, but the Bible's all about rebellion and war. I wish it was otherwise. The passage we referred to a little while ago, Isaiah 14, it's Lucifer raising up in rebellion against God and having a war in heaven. And if you read the end of the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, it's a war. It's the lamb and his troops routing the usurper and doing away in battle once and for all. If you see the world... As a Christian person, you understand that we're calling for a regime change, that a usurping, lying sack a son of a you-know-what has set himself up as king of this place. And our king, who is broken into history, is the real king. And we want his rule and his authority, his person to come. We want people to know the freedom and power of his person and his kingdom. And we work to that end. There he is getting his due. It's a big, giant battle. We're almost to the Christmas season, to Advent, and this—the events of the Advent and really the Crucifixion, Resurrection—are the it's the central turning point in history. When when Jesus came, it was a political thing. The most frequently read passage. This may even be what Linus reads in the Charlie Brown special, if y'all are. Young enough to remember that, or old enough, or I don't know what you have to be. But in red are all the, the words in that passage that have to do with sort of political things, government, princes. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and peace will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing Napoleon with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Amen. Yes? Yes. Here comes the king. He has been shown with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. We want him to come. He's already broken into history. It's really just sort of a cleanup operation from here on. Death is conquered. He saw Satan fall from heaven. He said that to his disciples, didn't he? The enemy's time is short, but it's still a war. Christian people think linearly, and they should. Um, If time is is linearly, it's long, then we're going to go from Adam and Eve, and then the central event of history, Jesus Christ conquering death, and suffering on our behalf and being shown to be God's son. And now we're in in-between time. Do you think about his return? When I was younger I really didn't think about it much. I think a lot more about it now. I think with all the great things that are going on in my life, if Jesus came back right now, I would be so happy. It wasn't always that way. I, I, There's a story I often tell. I was a medical student. I was studying the Tulane Law school library in New Orleans. Even though I went to LSU Med School, it's where sort of the cute Tulane girls studied. So we were there, and I had this thing. I would always bring my Bible, use old carols in the library, and I would I would have this day where I'd try to make myself read a little Bible before I'd study, and I would set my Bible after I read my Bible up on the little shelf, and I was studying something or another, and a guy comes by, a stranger I never met before, kind of a wild-haired guy, probably 50. And he stops. He wants to talk to me. He asks me if that's the Bible. He asks me if I'm a Christian. He asks me what I'm studying. I tell him. He says, oh, you're in medical school. When are you going to graduate? I said, 1990. He goes, don't you know the world's ending in 1988? (laughs) This was 1986. I thought, I don't have to study. (laughs)
1: Give
0: me a second. I'll go tell everybody, you know. Apostle T. Lyles, that was his name. I still remember it to this day, right? He gave me a pamphlet, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 88. (laughs) Wrong. Okay? But here's the reason I tell the story. Like, there was a little tiny part of me that thought, Oh, I kind of wanted to be a doctor. Jesus, can you delay till 91? (laughs) Which is nuts. That's nuts. Exactly. <laughs> now you're thinking. All right. Good. The return of Jesus should be a real and daily reality force, like a, a, something that we're longing for and we're thinking about, that, that gets us energy to do the day, because the day's hard a lot, isn't it? And thinking about set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed from 1 Peter this morning. So it's hard, I've said this before, you can't really get Google Images good for Jesus Returns, right? So get ready, this is the best I got. There he is. Admit it, you want to see him come again, don't you? Uh Boom, there he is. He is, he's coming back, all right? And when he comes back, the fullness of that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, the fullness of that is going to be real, all right? However you understand struggling sin within you, that, that fight is over, all right? The, the loss we feel, the suffering we feel, the pain we feel, the alienation, the struggling with all of it is over when the king comes, He is broken into history. His kingdom has come in part, and it's coming in fullness. That's our hope. That's why we'll go to the other side of the world or to difficult places, because he's coming back. All right, so we're going to do our timeline again. We're going to move down the line a little bit. Okay, and here's what I want us all to concentrate on now. You and me are there. You see the X? It might be that our X is closer to Jesus coming from the grave than to Jesus coming back. We, We don't know that. But he has come, and he's coming again, and we live in between the two comings of the king when there's still warfare, where there are peoples who haven't heard where there are places on the globe where the king is not receiving the worship and honor he deserves. I got some pushback for um, speaking ill of Joel Olsteen this morning. And if I offended some of you, you need to rethink your position. (laughs) Fundamentally, that sort of teaching puts the X on the other side, meaning it makes us think that Jesus has already come, that all this terrible struggle has already happened and that it's already heaven, and that the sole reason we have this relationship with Jesus is so he can anoint us and bless us and give us good things. That will come if you're faithful. But it's not now. We're at war. All right. Here is an unmitigated bad guy, right? right. You might get mad at me hating on Joel Alstein, but no one's going to defend no. him. <laughs> there are many people certainly in this room who knew more about European history than me, but the Germans were defeated in World War I, and they got really bad reparations put against them. And the German people were beat down, and it happened in the 1920s and 30s that there was a fertile ground for someone like this to stir the German people up. And the German war machine was rebuilt. And after lying repeatedly about their intentions, um, the Nazis invaded all of Western Europe and beyond. And they used a really scary new form of warfare called Blitzkrieg with tanks and troops, and they wiped up the map. Uh, They knocked out Belgium very quickly. There's all the jokes about how many French does it take to defend Paris nobody knows they've never tried you know, those sort of jokes was, that was a joke <laughs> there was no way initially to defend against um, I think I have a picture here Battle of Dunkirk where the English were basically pushed off the continent into the English Channel because the German army was so fierce so destructive so powerful they did things that had not been done in European war before they when they couldn't get the English to surrender and they didn't, weren't able to invade England, they began to bomb civilian cities and kill civilians. It wasn't common practice at that time. It became evident within a few years at least, sorry, got a picture, there they are, that among other peoples, that the Germans were rounding up Jewish people and either making them slaves or killing them. The guy standing up there on the left is Dwight David Eisenhower. He was um, general of Operation Overlord, which was the D-Day invasion. Germans mopped up Europe, lots of North Africa, and by the time we got in the war, everybody understood that if the Germans were going to be beaten back A large force, mostly led by Americans, were going to have to reinvade the continent and come somewhere along the French border. And so it was just a foregone conclusion. Eisenhower had about 200,000 men in this giant mission to get people prepared on the English side of the channel and figure out how they could sneak in and get a beachhead. They had to secure enough space to continue to bring the army on in order to fight. And Hitler understood, everybody understood, If there was a successful invasion in a foothold, it would probably mean the eventual end of the war. And if the Germans, on the other hand, could push it back into the ocean, then the Germans win. This is a map of the beaches and the main forces that were there. Germans um, created what was called Fortress Europe. They put all sorts of mines and barbed wire and bombs along the coast, everywhere where they had high ground, they put these guns. They had basically a flexible defense system where there were defenses all along, but they were wandering behind the lines, armies that could be called when, when the location of the evangel was known, could be called in to focus on that place and repulse the invading army. For my money, these guys, the paratroopers, had the absolute scariest job. They went in the night before, and they were dropped behind enemy lines before what they hoped was going to be a successful naval invasion. And their job was to find roads and railroads and Germans of any kind and to fight them and not allow them to gather, attack, and repulse the Allies as they came on the beach. They had very clear instructions. If you get off course, you're not near the objective that you've given, you regroup with other guys like yourselves, and you go blow some German stuff up. Go do some damage. Get Stay in the battle. So unbelievable number of them were killed, some of them even as they were coming out of the planes. There was um, probably no more than a third of them were dropped even close to the places that they were supposed to be. So they were um, at a big disadvantage. Most of us have seen the movies about the naval invasion, about these boats, these Higgins boats that plowed into the beach in the early morning hours and unloaded people. Can you imagine? Into the face of all that. But after just really a few hours, there was a successful beachhead. And less people died in this battle, roughly the same number of people died in this battle as in 9-11. Much smaller number than were expected to die. But they did die. This is a cemetery in France. Americans, Christians, and Jews who died to help free not just France, but all of Europe. So I told you all that to tell you this. There were a few, not many, there were a few of those paratroopers I told you about when they landed far away from their objective, not near where they were supposed to do, did not look to regroup with others and go find things to fight and shoot. They found nice French houses, nice French towns. that had French girls and French wine and French bread, and they sat it out. The most crucial time, the most central battle of World War II. When their fellow soldiers were being attacked and killed, They took a break. They did not get to participate in the celebratory victories when Paris, in this example, was liberated and when eventually the Germans were destroyed. By military law, they should have been executed because what they did is treason. But they weren't. They were jailed, most of them. The story's not really told much. You see where I'm going, right? We are between the first and second coming of the King. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, we realize that we're part of that. We get to be part of Jesus' kingdom expanding on this earth. He allows us to do that. We're not allowed to take a rest. It's not Eisenhower. It's King Jesus. Young folks, don't do that, right? We are already sort of not doing so well, my generation older. We need you, okay? We need young people to recognize the battle for what it is and engage in it, to fight everything in our culture that tells you that you should be about your own comfort and your own agenda and remember that we're involved in this great struggle and that we're bringing back the king. And we have to be alert. I'm just going to skip this next slide because it's... uh, I can't skip it now. All right. There it is. Got to deal with it. All right. I said it this morning. We need... Those of us who are healthcare professionals who think, oh, so very much of ourselves, get over yourself, right? We're all part of that 200,000 man army that Eisenhower has. In fact, we just all have a part in the operation. We're a gear. You know, some of us are bigger gears than others, but it's not about us and our profession. It's not about us finding the perfect specialty or perfect gig we want, right? It's about driving Hitler away. About going into the face of the enemy. And letting the king, the general, tell us what he wants to do with what we are and who we are. Golly. Not this recent match, but the year before. The match, for those of you who don't know about this crazy thing with medicine, after you finish medical school, you choose a specialty, and then you go through this giant match, where you decide what specialty you want, and you try to get a job as a resident in those specialties. And so there are some specialties that are more desirable than others, right? It happens that um, at the University of Tennessee, where I live, where I'm involved in the CMBA chapter, out of a class of about 152 years ago, 24 of those doctors decided they wanted to be radiologists, so we need some radiologists, right? The truth is we need about 3% of the physician workforce to be radiologists, and we need. it's great to have Christian radiologists. It's good, right? Okay, for some reason that year, not 3%, but 17% of the students at UD wanted to be radiologists. It's probably just a coincidence, right? Just like every oxygen molecule in this room could go in that corner and we'd all fall over dead. That could happen. Right? <laughs> there's two reasons why some of those students at least many who by the way proclaim to be disciples of Jesus two reasons why that was the career choice for them and what are they? money Money, lifestyle that works fine unless you're a slave of Jesus Christ if you are a slave of Jesus Christ then it's stupid to make choices like that just stupid because he's coming back Um, 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 is that what we want to be? Um, I was thinking I would be able to go on short-term mission trips and I have more income to give to church. I didn't actually do those things that much, but that's what I was thinking. (laughs)
1: Love
0: you, Jesus. in the midst of this battle of longing to bring the king back, we really are not allowed to think in these terms, right? It might be some of us are called to live this sort of existence, but it certainly shouldn't be our default. (coughs) It really is a war. It really is noble. It's more noble than the Lord of the Rings because it is the Lord of the Rings. That's what Tolkien was depicting in that novel, right? Right. That's what all these things in our culture that we all love, even the non-believers. You know, it's, it's a little pantheistic, and I, I know there's issues about the force and all that, but the Star Wars story is effectively the same story. There is a disembodied force of evil that wants to oppress everybody else, and there's a few people with courage and commitment to good who will fight and risk for themselves and win against all odds. And there's that beautiful scene at all the ends of these movies where the people who are faithful come out, I love the one at the end of the Lord of the Rings. When the hobbits are about to bow to Aragorn? You remember what he says? You bow to nobody. Because they were faithful, right? They put themselves at risk. They were committed. They were waiting for the time when the king comes, for the return of the king. Or Obi Wan. Or somebody. All right, I think this is the final thing, and we've got to get out of here anyway. Um, I memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 early in my Christian life, and it's a beautiful description of the gospel, and many of you know it too. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. True that, right? (laughs) right? That's the truth. Oh, my goodness, that's the truth. There's nothing we did to merit what Jesus Christ did on our behalf and does on our behalf every day. it is purely out of the kindness and goodness of God that we have been redeemed. We, we have nothing no work that we can do to boast in. the truest of true things, the most freeing and happy of things. The next verse is Ephesians 2:10 which, uh, it was ten years before I memorized it. Some of you know it too. all right Think about the first two verses when you think about the third, for we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see him playing with the words? You can't work your way to God's grace. Your works are nothing. You can't boast before God about any works. But when he saves you, then he's the worker. He's taking you, your workmanship of God. He's making something out of you. And part of what he's making out of you is work for you to do. And the amazing thing is, everyone in this room, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's something that God prepared in advance for you to do. You've got an assignment. You've got to figure out what it is. You've got to learn how to pray and ask and obey and let him show you. But before you got saved, he had a reason for you to be saved. He wants to employ you. He wants to put you into this battle. He wants you to be part of the victory celebration in the end. Maybe a little cog, maybe a big cog. It doesn't matter. Does it? In the end, we're all going to be throwing whatever we got on our heads in front of him and jumping up and down and high-fiving and trying to learn Swahili. and, you know, <laughs> Actually, we'll all speak the same language probably, won't we? Babel will be re- reversed too. the very best thing that you could imagine using your American mindset for your life is nothing compared to what God would have for you. He has something for you already. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're also praying like, and show me what's my part in it, please, and let me do it. Okay. The other three talks are really good too. (laughs) I love the Lord's Prayer. This is this is what we should. This is the argument I was making with you earlier. If you could break the habit of whatever you're using now for a time in your devotional time, and think about and meditate on these truths in the Lord's Prayer, they're just really life-transforming. Understanding the interaction of the praying and the doing and the purpose and what we're about. It's great. Okay, um, that's my contact information. We've got five minutes. Does anybody want to say anything or ask anything? No gun story. The what? The gun story. All right. So here's the gun story. All right. I'm in my bed, second floor of our house, uh, probably 1130 night one night. My wife kicks me awake. And she says, there's somebody in the backyard. So I do a quick calculation of what's in the backyard. And there's some, like, $20 Target bikes, and there's a ladder that I kind of like, and that's it, all right? (laughs) And it's wintertime, and it's probably 30 degrees outside, and it's more information than you want, but I sleep in underwear, all right? So (laughs) she is literally trying to kick me out of bed to go confront the man who is indeed taking our kids' bikes and moving them from the backyard to the driveway. So I come down the stairs gingerly in all my glory, and I think all I'll have to do is knock bang, bang, bang on the glass window and he'll see me and he'll run off, right? Or he'll want to throw up at looking at me, and, me and he does see me, but he just keeps up his work and he gets another bike and he starts walking. And my wife looks at me like, I wish I had a man for a husband. She didn't exactly say that, but she's... You know, clearly your body language is get out there after and I'm like, look, I'm Laurie. I'm just, you know, so I open the door. I'm like, hey, buddy. <laughs> she's put out with it and she actually takes off past me and goes after him. <laughs> yeah, right. So then I'm calling my wife back like she's a golden retriever. <laughs> Laurie, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> she finally comes back and she is just unhappy with me and I just uh, there's nothing I can do I'm like alright I'm going to go get dressed and drive around the car and I'll get the bikes back you know I mean? <laughs> so I just went through the motions I went alright and I was I just there was just not a good way for that to end alright two nights later it's earlier 10.30 she's up in bed not asleep yet I'm downstairs answering an email and I hear the gate open and he's back and I utter a prayer of thanksgiving because I can redeem my manhood <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I don't recognize him, African-American guy, I see him, and I don't know what got in my head, but I ran to a closet and I got our pellet gun that I would used to get rid of pigeons up in the... and I ran out there, all right? And I made sure I spoke real loud under the window where my wife was. <laughs> hey, buddy! And he begins to tell me that uh, his dog was lost and he was looking for his dog in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> What did I do next? We could actually ask it in two ways. What should I have done next? And what did I do next? What I really did, and I don't think it was the right thing necessarily, is I told him, you can't do this, and if you come back, I'm going to go upside your head with this high-powered rifle I have here. (laughs) And he left, and he never came back. But I went back upstairs. (laughs) think probably I should have figured out what he really needed or what he wanted, yeah. But, that's the story of the Pelican. Alright. <laughs> okay, we got to get out of here. I think somebody's in here at 4 o'clock. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>